Okay, let's continue with the next part, which is about the equilibrium, the vestibular apparatus and equilibrium. The equilibrium sends and or balance and hearing both, they are located in the ear, called the hearing apparatus and vestibular apparatus. They are both housed by the temporal bone. And starting with the vestibular apparatus, the main purpose is to keep the balance of the body, provide the sense of equilibrium. And it's in the ear, in that part called the inner ear. In the inner ear, it's a very small space inside the temporal bone. And we can recognize two main areas. The otolith organs and semicircular canals. The otolith organs, yes. Temporal bone. Temporal bone. The otolith organs are two utricle and saccule. And they are responsible for the sense of linear acceleration. In semicircular canals, they are responsible for the rotational acceleration. So meaning when we are moving our body, or our head specifically, in one direction, like horizontal or vertical, that those sensations are perceived by the utricle and saccule. Rotational, when we spin around an object or rotate our heads, that give us a sensation of uh, position in the space and to where our head is moving. Rotational acceleration, that is sensed by the semicircular canals. Semicircular canals are like loops loops that are oriented in the three axes of the space, is X, Y, and Z. And they help to get us oriented in the space. The inner ear is the place where all these <coughs> um, structures are located. And in the temporal bone, we have this set of uh, ducts called bony labyrinth. The bony labyrinth is like a maze. You get into that and you get into many different ducts and curves and areas which is sculpted in the temporal bone. Now all these ducts they are covered by a membrane inside and that makes this kind of mold inside called the membrane or membranous labyrinth. And that's what we see here in blue. In blue, in blue we see the uh, membranous labyrinth. And let me increase this a little bit. And around in light blue will be the space, the space inside the bony labyrinth. <coughs> now in between the two, the bony labyrinth and, and the membranous labyrinth, there's a fluid called perilymph. 
which is very similar to the CSF or cerebrospinal fluid, but it's called perilymph. And inside the membranous labyrinth, so in all these spaces are blue, dark blue, we have another fluid called endolymph. And the same for all these structures that we see here. Now here, all this is the inner ear, the utricle and saccule are located here. This will be the utricle, and it will be the saccule here. And the semicircular canals are all these three. There are three named according to the orientation of this, anterior, posterior, lateral. It is very hard actually to determine which is which. If we have this in, like represented in the model, uh, we have to look for the position, actual position in the temporal bone. But notice that they are oriented in the three axes of the space. That's what is important to, um, to note. And uh, we just highlighted here the utricle, saccular, semicircular canals. You see in the other side of the picture, there's another organ here called the cochlea. All this part right here. That is the organ of hearing. The organ of hearing in the cochlea is where all the um, uh, sounds are detected. Utricle, saccular, semicircular canals are for equilibrium. And in yellow behind, we can see a nervous structure. The cochlear nerve, specifically for hearing in this case. It's not completely drawn because there's another branch of this nerve that connects to the organs of equilibrium. Now, going to more to detail of how these sensations of equilibrium are detected. There are specialized cells called sensory hair cells. They are epithelial cells modified with stereocilia, which are hair-like extensions. They're not actually true cilia, they're called stereocilia. And one kinocilium. In, uh, in the diagram you can see the kinocilium in pink and the stereocilia in, uh, in blue. And how it works is that they are going to move to one side or another and that bending motion is what will make the stimulus. You see here the motion of the kinocilium makes a depression in the membrane. So that deformation of the membrane is going to trigger action potentials in the surface of this membrane. And that's what, what we see here. When the membrane is depressed, here at the bottom we see many action potentials being produced. But when the kinocilium moves in the other direction, then that part of the membrane is not depressed, and that decreases the frequency of action potentials. Now these cells, they are located, they are found in specific places, and we'll see how they work. In the utricle and saccule, 
there are these cells and how we see them is like this. We have the hair cells as part of the epithelium surrounded by supporting cells. But the thing is on top of these cells, we have the kinocilium, stereocilia. They are covered by a gel-like membrane called otholytic membrane. And embedded in that membrane, we'll find small little stones, little rocks called otoliths, which are actually calcium carbonate. These are like small pieces of uh, bone or crystals there. And they have weight. So if we see here, if we flex our head like this, under the effect of the gravity, what is going to happen is that the otoliths, since they are little rocks, they'll be attracted by the gravity and it will pull the gel-like membrane with it. And the cilia are embedded in that membrane, so it will pull those cilia to one side, and that bending motion of the hair cells will start the depol depolarization. And these cells are distributed differently in the utricle and in the saccule. In the utricle, it will allow the sensation of horizontal movement. And in the saccule, it will detect the sensation of vertical movement. So when we go in the elevator, for instance, that sensation is detected by the saccule. And when we move, forward in one direction, horizontal, then we have the sensation detected by the utricle. And the same cells, same, same type of cells are located in a different way in the utricle and saccule. And if we go back to this picture right here, we can see the utricle and saccule. The utricle, this spot is where the cells are. They're oriented in a different direction than the saccule, like a 90 degree. One of them will detect horizontal motion and the other one vertical motion. Yeah. Yes, the vertigo has to do with all these structures but specifically uh, more related with the semicircular canals because that gives a sensation of rotation. And usually when someone has the vertigo, it's, it's described as the objects moving around, ob objects of the room moving around the person and having a loss of equilibrium. That has many reasons. There may be a damage of the cells, so the hair cells are not detected properly. There may be a loss of the fluid perilymph and endolymph, or there may be a damage to the semicircular canals by any infection or viral infection. It's very common in people with um, uh, respiratory, chronic respiratory infections or some viral respiratory infections that last a long time. They invade sometimes the inner ear, and people may develop this sensation of vertigo, which is temporary. And after the infection goes away, it recovers. 
Uh, in some other cases, it won't recover. It lasts much longer. But it has to do with all these structures. Hmm? Oh yes, there is. There is chronic vertigo. It's not always. It's not always temporary. It depends on the type of damage that, <coughs> that is made to the cells. In the semicircular canals, it's the same principle. The hair cells are now located in each of the semicircular canals. And these hair cells are covered again by this membrane, the gel-like membrane. In this case, it's called the cupola. You see this blue thing here. And these cells, hair cells, are connected to the sensory fibers and embedded the cilia in this membrane. In this case, there's no autolytes, there's no little rocks here. But what's going to happen is the fluid inside the semicircular canals called endolymph is going to bend the cupola and therefore is pull the hairs to one side, the hairy cells. So each canal, the semicircular canal, is filled with this fluid called endolymph. And at the base of each of the ducts, there is a, an enlarged area called ampulla. And inside the ampulla is where the hair cells and the cupula, the stereocilia, all of these structures are in that ampulla. Let's go back to the first picture again to see where it is. Semicircular canals, and at the base of each of these ducts, we have the ampulla. And in the middle of it, you see the, the spot, that's where the cells and the membrane cupola and are located. And how it works? Well, you rotate your head in one direction, and the fluid inside the semicircular canal will move by static. When you move and the fluid goes, moves in the, other, in the opposite direction. And that will bend this membrane and will bend the cilia. And whichever direction you go or orient your body, then you have the sense of being in the space. Going X, Y, and Z. And that's different degree of stimulation to the three semicircular ducts and ampulla that will give that sensation of moving in some direction. Pathways. The pathways for balance and equilibrium, they have different components. And this diagram is showing one thing that is very interesting because the vestibular apparatus, all the things that we've been studying, the semicircular canals, utricle, saccule, is represented by this square here, the vestibular apparatus. Now, all these sensations perceived by the utricle, saccule, semicircular ducts, etc will connect to a group of neurons in the brainstem <coughs> called the vestibular nuclei. But then that vestibular nuclei of the brainstem will be connected to the cerebellum. The cerebellum is the one that coordinates our <coughs> movements. We detect the position of our body through the vestibular apparatus. But any change or correction that we have to make has to be mediated by the cerebellum. The cerebellum will 
has to be informed about this position and make the correct, uh, the appropriate corrections. But there are more components involved here, and those components are the eyes and proprioceptors from joints, tendons, and muscles. They inform the vestibular nuclei in the brain stem. So we can say that there are three components necessary for equilibrium. And those components are your vestibular apparatus, semicircular canals, utricle, saccule. The second component is vision. And the third component are proprioceptors and the joints, tendons, and muscles. Thanks to these three components is that we keep our balance and keep our equilibrium. And from the vestibular nuclei, you see arrows connecting to spinal cord and oculomotor center that are going to move your eyeballs depending on the orientation or position that you get. What's the practical application of this? When we have someone complaining of chronic dizziness, for instance, vertigo, we need to know where the problem is. And we have this knowledge of vestibular apparatus, eyes, and proprioceptors. Then we can make some tests. And some tests are eliminating one or more of these components. How we do this? Well, you can ask the subject, and that's actually done in a neurologic examination. We ask the subject to stand still and close eyes. So yeah, close your eyes, and what we're doing is eliminating this component, the vision. So what's gonna happen? There are only two components working, the vestibular apparatus and the proprioceptors, and then after some seconds, you will see the person, if you observe carefully, you take a video of this, you see the person doing this, leaning both sides, leaning back and forth, and correcting the position. Because since there's no vision anymore, the eyes are closed, the vestibular nuclei has to receive information from the tendons, the muscles, and the body starts making these movements in order to inform all the position of the body. But then, if you eliminate two of these components, then the person will not be able to keep the equilibrium. How can we eliminate the vestibular apparatus or the proprioceptors? Well, the proprioceptors, if there's some problem in the uh, pathways that are coming from the spinal cord, someone with stroke or something will not be able to keep the equilibrium. The other way is how the vestibular apparatus can be damaged. Vestibular apparatus and cerebellum. Some people with tumors in the cerebellum, and they complain of dizziness, we make this quick examination, we can detect that the problem is from the cerebellum or vestibular apparatus. Of course, this is just one of the things. I mean, uh, there are other tests that have to be performed. But it's part of the physical examination. And this is something that uh, we can also test in which other way we can damage the vestibular apparatus and cerebellum by intoxication, alcohol intoxication.
the cerebellum is usually one of the first neurons that get intoxicated by alcohol. And so if we have someone, let's say someone that's, that's, that's one of the uh, quick tests for DUI, they ask you to stand still. And if you have your neurons intoxicated with alcohol, if you close your eyes, you will not be able to keep the there are more variations of this examination. They ask you to walk in a straight line or one, holding one leg and things like that. But all of them are based on this concept of three components, vestibular apparatus, cerebellum, eyes, and proprioceptors. Now let's move to the ears and the hearing apparatus. Starting with the concept of the sound. The sound is defined as air molecules, air particles vibrating. And how they vibrate with a pattern of a wave. And this can be measured in hertz, which is just a number of waves in a unit of time, which is the second. And that's why we see these graphs here where we can interpret different pitch that the sounds may have, a lower pitch and a higher pitch, and you see the frequency, the number of waves is different. And the amplitude of these waves is related with the intensity or, or loudness of the noise. And it's measured in a different way. It's measured, measured with the decibels. It's a different unit to measure the intensity or loudness of the sound. So this is what the hearing apparatus will detect. And it is the detection, it is about the detection of the vibration of the air molecules by the tympanic membrane, which works as an eardrum. It works like a, like a drum, like the diaphragm or membrane of a drum. The tympanic membrane is actually separating the external ear from the middle ear. In anatomy, we divide this external ear, middle ear, and inner ear. Yes. If you... Yeah, there are different explanations for that. One of the things is that in the temporal bone where this apparatus is, very close, we have the carotid artery getting into the brain. And so when the carotid artery is dilating and being elastic like this because of the pressure in the blood, that will be detected. That vibration will be transmitted to the temporal bone. And the temporal bone actually vibrates and it vibrates, it makes this apparatus vibrate, and you are able to hear your heart beat in that way. But it's irregular with the heartbeat, like the heartbeat goes down, Well, that carotid artery is a little bit delayed with the pulse that you feel here. That's why it has a feeling of being not the same thing. So a little bit of delay between what you have here, because it's closer to the heart, and what you feel in the radial artery but it's the same frequency. You can take your pulse by hearing, you can take your pulse here, it'll be the same. But uh, yeah, the sensation may be a little bit delayed 
and that makes that sensation. You know, people with high blood pressure, they have that symptom. They hear their, 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 their heartbeat, and uh, that may, may be uncomfortable sometimes for many people. So in the middle ear, what we have is a cavity occupied by a chain of little bones, three bones called ossicles, known as the malleus, incus, and stapes, that transmit the vibrations of the eardrums. So the air comes and hits again the tympanic membrane. Tympanic membrane is connected to this chain of little bones. And the vibrations are transmitted and amplified at the same time. This middle ear, this middle ear is where all these uh, little bones are connected and is filled with air and there is a connection with the pharynx through the auditory tube or eustachian tube. And finally, when it gets this chain of little bones connecting the eardrum, it will connect them to the inner ear. And the inner ear is where the hearing apparatus is. It's called the cochlea. There are three chambers in the cochlea. If we make a section of the cochlea, this is like a spiral system of the same duct, actually, all twisted, like in a spiral, uh, in uh, making turns and turns. So what we see here is a transverse section of the cochlea. As we see here, this is the same image that we showed before, the semicircular canals, utricle, saccule, and now the cochlea is what we are studying. If we make a section like that, in that way, we end up with this figure. And the turns are like these circles, every turn. The yellow fibers you see there are branches of the cochlear nerve, or vestibular cochlear, cranial nerve number eight, that will bring all this hearing or sensations from the cochlea. If we get one of these to see it bigger, we'll see this thing. We identify three, three chambers. And they have different names. In green, in green, we have the cochlear duct. It contains endolymph. Separated by the vestibular membrane, we have scala vestibuli that contains perilymph in blue. And below the cochlear duct, we have another duct called scala tympani, which is full of perilymph also. And in between the two, we have the nerve structure of the branches of the cochlear nerve connecting to the nerve, to the hearing organ, also known as the organ of corti, here represented in pink. We can translate this into the other picture, but we have it here. Yes? So the three uh, chambers are the cochlear duct, the scala vestibuli, and the scala tympani? Yeah. 
Here we have them again, the cochlear duct that contains endolymph, scala vestibuli that contains perilymph, and a scala tympani that contains also perilymph. And in between, in the middle, we have the cochlear duct. Inside the cochlear duct, we have the organ of corti or hearing organ. That is where we will find the specialized cells. Now, imagine this. This is a section. Now, imagine how this actually looks. If you are able to get inside the cochlea, you will have like a passageway that goes in a spiral way, this, all this way. And if I figure this organ of corti, like in a section here, I can imagine this, the whole organ going in a spiral way. So it's actually a spiral organ that goes in this way, all along the ducts until the apical turn. Cochlear implants are devices that are used nowadays to improve the hearing of some people, and some people that are a uh, good candidate for cochlear implants. What a cochlear implant is, is a device, like a little hair, that is placed inside the cochlear duct here. And it's a spiral thing. So there's inserted with a very, very fine surgery, inserted here, and it gets inside, and follow this spiral thing. And it will detect the vibrations. It will detect the vibrations and actually improve the hearing for some people. So we have it here, the cochlea. Um, membranous labyrinth will determine the scala media or cochlear duct uh, filled with endolymph. The leukotrema is the name that we give to the very top, the apical place of this cochlea, what we call here the apical turn. So this little top right here is called a leukotrema. Yeah, yeah, because the very top of the spinal structure. This is the organ of corti or spinal organ. Again, we see the three chambers here: scala vestibula, scala tympani, and cochlear duct, and the spinal organ here. We see a membrane called the basilar membrane, which is like the base where all these organ is. And from there, these cells, the cells, specialized cells here, and a membrane of a gel-like material called tectorial membrane. Now let's see this more amplified. You see it much better. This is called the organ of corti. There's a tectorial membrane in blue. And we can see the specialized hairy cells that are divided in inner hair cells and outer hair cells. Imagine this like a little the spiral uh, rug that goes all around. And of course, these are supported by other cells, the basilar membrane, which is here. And all these hair cells are connected to the nerve branches leading to the nervous system, to the central nervous system. Going back two slides, we were here. 
How the sound transmission works? The little bones will hit against a window. That is a window that connects middle with inner ear. And that window is called oval window. So the little bone called stapes is going to hit against that window after the vibration is transmitted. And what's in the other side of the window? In the other side of the window is the scala vestibuli, which contains perilymph. Now, this perilymph will start vibrating. Will start vibrating, and through the vestibular membrane, it will make the cochlear duct vibrate. Therefore, the fluid inside the cochlear duct, which is endolymph, will start vibrating. And what's inside the cochlear duct? The organ of corti. The basilar membrane is kind of floating in the endolymph of the cochlear duct. And the vibrations, the vibrations will be passed and transmitted to the scala tympani. Scala tympani will release those vibrations to a different window called round window. Now let's explain this in this graph. This graph, what it shows is the cochlear duct, I mean, all the cochlea, all the cochlea that is in spiral arrangement like this have been stretched. And we see it now like only one duct. That's what we did here. And we have here the oval window connected to the stapes here, the middle ear, the little bones. So this stapes vibrates, hits against the oval window. The oval window and the other side of the oval window is the scalvis tibuli that contains perilymph. And this perilymph will start vibrating. And in the middle we have the cochlear duct that contains endolymph and it will also vibrate. And what we have inside the cochlear duct, the organ of corti, which is represented here as this long, long segment containing all the hair cells. Now the perilymph is vibrating. But notice here, the end of this duct, this is what the helicotrema is, the very apical part of the, the cochlea. Well, there's actually a connection here. And this same perilymph <coughs> will travel now in the scalatympany. And this vibration is released to the, to the middle ear through the round window. This round window contains a membrane that is actually releasing these vibrations. Otherwise, this fluid will be vibrating and will hit against the bone here, and it will just come, bounce, and then come back, and then can bounce, and then come back. This will be vibrating forever. This vibration has to stop. This vibration is released here to the, uh, to the middle here. What we see here as curves are the different waves and the different pitch of different sounds that are detected at different places in the organ of corti. So there's a long, long uh, cochlear uh, or organ of corti containing many numerous cells. And different frequencies are detected in different segments of the cochlear organ, or the organ of corti. 
if we lose hearing, if we lose hearing, sometimes it's because we are losing the cells from here in some particular parts. And there's a study called the audiogram, by which subject is examined using some uh, headphones and play some sounds of different frequencies and they ask the subject, do you listen, do you hear, do you hear? And the subject starts saying, I hear it, I hear it, I don't hear that, I don't hear that. And we make a curve. We establish that some people lose hearing at some frequencies. Now maybe because they are losing some of these cells, that usually happens in the part of the aging process. We start losing some cells here and we start losing the hearing at some frequencies. And the neural pathways, how they go. Neural pathways travel in this way. From the organ of Corti, all the sensations travel through the vestibular cochlear nerve, which is the eighth cranial nerve. And they will connect to the medulla oblongata, to the medulla oblongata. cochlear nucleus and vestibular nucleus. From there, they will go to the midbrain, to the inferior colliculus. There's another connection there. And then to the thalamus. Again, all sensations go to the thalamus, even the hearing, it goes to the thalamus. And from the thalamus, it gets distributed to the auditory cortex, temporal lobe, both sides. Some fibers will cross over and some fibers will remain in the same side. And both sides of the cerebral cortex are activated. And there's another representation of the different tones, low pitch, medium, and high pitch, uh, that are detected in different areas of the cochlea. And therefore, they have the representation in different areas of the temporal lobe and the cerebral cortex. Sometimes damage in the temporal lobe can be related with the loss of hearing or some particular frequencies only. Main problem, loss of hearing. Loss of hearing that can be of two types conduction deafness and sensory neural deafness. Difference is conduction, any structure of the outer, middle, or inner ear that transmit the sound waves by mechanical means. In sensory neural, damage to the cochlea to the organ of corti, nerves, cranial nerve, or cerebral cortex. There are different tests to differentiate this because patients come with a complaint of loss of hearing. We don't know if it's a conduction deafness. Maybe someone had a problem, chronic infection of the middle ear, maybe a tympanic membrane that is 
broken or torn, or maybe damage to cells of the organ of Corti, or the hearing Corti, or the hearing organ. There are different tests to differentiate conduction, deafness, and sensory audiogram is performed. And uh, one more problem here called presbycusis, that's the age-related hearing impairment. It usually has to do with loss of cells in the organ of Corti at an advanced age. But not only, maybe problem of uh, mobility of the middle ear ossicles. And problems in the inner ear sometimes have this symptom which is very uncomfortable for to have, which is called tinnitus or ringing in the ear. Some people complain of hearing a sound all the time, 24-7. There's a sound there like a, some crickets inside, like a ringing all the time, and it won't stop with anything. One explanation of that is the damage in the inner ear. Sometimes that happens in people of uh, uh, older ages. Because of calcification of the round window, if this is calcified, meaning that this window is completely blocked, well, the vibrations here won't have a release. And this vibration will be back and forth all the time, stimulating the, the cells. And that is translated into sound. It is perceived all the time. That's one of the explanations. There are many other explanations for the tinnitus or ringing in the ears. What's that? And the round window may be calcified and um, part of the aging process. For some other people, because of chronic infections of the middle ear, there's a scar tissue that will be locked up the whole window and have this problem. Oh yeah, that, that's that's a reaction. That's a protection reaction of, for the ear. And the middle ear. It happens in the middle ear. Usually, when you hear loud music or you are in um, um, like at a concert with loud music, and then afterwards you go home and the silent night you can hear like yeah. or something like that. Well, that is because of protection. You see this chain of bones? It is connected to this muscle, which is called the tensor tympani muscle. And it's also connected to this other tendon here. It's another muscle, it's the pius muscle. So what happens when you, have a, when you hear a loud noise or for a long time, those muscles will contract. Will contract trying to protect your tympani from being blown by the noise. And the contraction of those muscles that's what you hear. You hear the vibration of the contraction of this muscle. But then when they relax a lot of the time, some hours, and then everything goes back to normal. Hearing, and we get to the eyes. Vision is detection of a light. In the light, the spectrum of the visible light is seen in this 
whole spectrum or radiation or electromagnetic spectrum. The visual visible light is measured in waves again. And there's uh, different wavelengths that go from 400 to 700. And that is interpreted as different colors. Photoreceptors in the retina are the ones that detect this. And a quick review of the anatomy we can see here. The eyeball has chambers and many structures that allow the light to get in and impress the retina. There is this structure called the lens. It's actually separating the eyeball in two cavities. We trace a line here. We have an anterior cavity and a posterior cavity. In the anterior cavity, we have other structures like the iris, the cornea, and in the posterior cavity, we have the big space here filled with vitreous humor, which is a gel-like substance. It's like a gelatin, actually. And the layers, the layers are represented here in yellow. We see the retina, which is the nervous layer. That's where the photoreceptors are. Outer to the retina, we have the choroid, which is the vascular layer. Blood vessels are running here. And in uh, outermost, the sclera, which is a fibrous membrane, thick membrane. The retina in yellow is represented in yellow because it's, uh, it contains the receptors, the photoreceptors, and it's connected to all the axons traveling in the optic nerve. If you have a detached retina, any way to fix that? Yes, it has to be fixed quickly. How quick? Hours. <coughs> Within 8-12 hours. Otherwise, it won't reattach. Yeah. So the light has to go through different structures, and the first one is the cornea. The cornea is supposed to be clear, transparent, so the light goes through it, and every time the light goes through these structures, suffers some deviation of the angle called the refraction. Next, it goes through the pupil, which is the opening of the iris. And it will regulate the amount of light that gets in. Then it will get through the lens, which is again transparent, flexible. This lens can change its shape to focus the image. We call that accommodation. And then it gets to the posterior chamber. In the posterior chamber or posterior cavity, we have the vitreous humor or vitreous body, which is also clear, and it just light goes through it. And finally, we'll hit the retina. And that's where the photoreceptors are. And now the light. The light has to be absorbed at that point. Otherwise, it will just start bouncing like in a mirror. So there has to be a dark, a dark chamber and that darkness is provided by a pigmented layer in the choroid, which is outer to the retina. 
Some words about the iris, which determines the pupil. The iris is a smooth muscle that can increase or decrease the diameter of the pupil by constriction and dilation. Constriction is mediated by parasympathetic stimulation, and dilation is mediated by sympathetic stimulation. The iris is pigmented, so that's why the color of the eyes, different colors, the color is located, is based on pigments in the iris. Here we see dilation and constriction, two types of muscles, radial muscles and circular muscle. The radial muscles will mediate dilation. The circular muscle will constriction. Normally, I mean normal light, or usual, the pupil has a diameter, but in dim light, the radial muscle will contract and will open, increasing the diameter of the pupil. will dilate, dilate. Yeah. and the circular will constrict and in bright light the circular muscle will constrict and it will decrease the diameter of the pupil so less amount of light would get into the retina there's a reflex here and we have done that experiment I think in the uh, part of the lab there's a reflex with the light, and the light impresses the retina, and the retina connects to the midbrain, and that returns through a parasympathetic axon that connects to the circular, circular muscle that we constrict as a response of that reflex. Bright light, constriction. Dim light, dilation of the pupil. The lens is that structure that divides anterior cavity from posterior cavity, and it's completely clear, transparent. No blood vessels, but it's made of cells. And how do the cells survive? The cells survive nurtured by the fluids. The lens, the aqueous fluid, uh, is or aqueous humor is the one that provides nutrition to these cells. And by the way, the cell metabolism is very low and aerobic, so won't need much uh, irrigation from the blood. Now the lens is supported by muscles, actually a ligament called suspensory ligament, and that's what we see here in this representation. We have the lens and the suspensory ligament attaching the lens to the ciliary muscle. And the ciliary muscle is the red part all here. So when the ciliary muscle contracts, it will pull the ligaments, the suspensory ligament, and it will help to change the shape of the lens. The lens is flexible. It's a flexible lens. The aqueous humor is the one that nurtures the lens, the lens and the cornea. The lens and the cornea receive uh, nutrients from the 
aqueous humor. The aqueous humor is bathed in all these structures. It is located in the anterior cavity. And it has a whole system of circulation that we can see in this, in this picture here. The blue arrow is showing the direction that this fluid um, uh, follows. It is made it is made in cells here located next to the ciliary muscle and then it's drained into this place where the lens is and it goes in this direction in the anterior chamber all this contains the fluid provides nutrition to the lens to the cornea and then it's drained to the canal of Schlem located in this angle between the cornea and the iris that's where the fluid drains toward. This is fluid. It's like water. It's like watery uh, liquid. But if some problem happens in the circulation of this liquid, the pressure of this fluid will increase. And we call increased intraocular pressure. That may mean glaucoma. That's what the glaucoma is about. Increased pressure of the eye because of problems of circulation of the aqueous humor. How we can fix this? Well, there are different treatments. To decrease the production of fluid. Even some surgery to increase or improve the drainage of fluid at this angle. If not treated, that's one of the first causes of blindness because that pressure is transmitted to the retina and the retina may be damaged. This is what we call light refractions, the different deviations of the rays. At every moment that it goes through any structure like the cornea, the lens, vitreous humor, there's a change of angle of the light. Without light, what it brings? Images from the outside. And that's how this arrow is projected to the retina when going to the lens. The lens is a biconvex lens. And a biconvex lens usually projects the image inverted. All the images projected in the retina are upside down, as we see here. And the visual fields is another concept, which means, what is that part of the external world that I am able to see? There are some specific tests for that. One of the tests is uh, we ask a subject to move the hands, both upper limbs in this way, and then move the fingers, and go all the posterior that it can have, they can can do like this, and start moving the, the fingers with the uh, eyes fixed in the point in front, and there's a moment at which you will start seeing your fingers moving. And that gives you an idea of the whole visual field. So I'm able to see all this. Some people have a problem with the visual field. They have the vision, tunnel vision. They can only see a segment like this. And they, they are not able to see their hands until they get to this point. And that represents a particular problem with the visual field. That has a representation on the picture here. 
because let's say this eye, they're different colors. The green color represents this area of the visual field that you perceive with this part of the eye. And the orange part will detect this particular area of the visual field. And the other eye, the same way. So that will create the whole visual field. But now, look at these parts of the retina and how they connect to the optic nerve. So this optic nerve brings both of these sides of the retina connections. But then when they get here to the optic chiasm, there's a decusation of fibers because this part of the retina follows this way and it goes in this contralateral side. This part of the retina of this eye connects to the optic nerve but then travels in the same side. So that creates a different set of pathways that can be affecting different areas of the visual field. Like for example, if there is something here, like a tumor, and that's exactly where the pituitary gland is, one of the glands of the endocrine system, that is damaging two areas, or two fibers. Fibers that connect to this side of the retina, the fibers that connect to this side of the retina. So that means that these parts of the retina will not perceive this area of the field and not this area of the field. So this person will only have visual field like this, like a tunnel vision. And just by that, detecting that, I can tell that part of the pathway is affected. That's usually, that usually happens in people with tumors there on the pituitary gland in that part of the brain. There may be other variations of, uh, of the visual field that represent different damage in different places of the pathways. Accommodation, we said, is that ability of the lens to change its shape with the purpose to keep the focus, to keep one object focused on the retina. When we try to see a close object, very near, the ciliary muscles will contract. And the angle between the ciliary muscles and suspensorial ligament is such in such a way that when the muscle contracts, when the muscle contracts, the ligament will relax and the lens changes shape into a bulging appearance like this, like getting thicker. So we can focus on close objects. Ciliary muscle contracts and the suspensory ligament relaxes. When we focus distant objects, we relax the ciliary muscle. When we relax the ciliary muscle, the suspensory ligament taut. And that will pull the lens, changing its shape, making flat. And that allows focus on distant objects. That can explain why when we read for a long time, we get tired. And we, have, we may have some problems of focusing the 
lens because the ciliary muscle has been contracted for a long time. You're focusing close objects like reading and you get tired or fatigue. That process is called accommodation. Now there's a point at which <coughs> point in life at which that lens will get very very thick, rigid, it loses flexibility, it loses flexibility, and therefore accommodation is lost. And that's called presbyopia. Presbyopia, which cannot be fixed unless you replace the lens. And that's not worth it. That's part of the aging process. You start losing flexibility of the lens and you start focusing the objects much farther, all year by year, you have to read farther. Or you can read that, I would correct that with reading lens, reading glasses. You change the, the focus distance, focal distance. And uh, usually the, the process is not so accelerated, and in some few cases it is, but usually it's not. And that's uh, loose um, uh, loss of flexibility of the lens, presbyopia, and that comes with the aging process. We did this visual acuity in the lab, just measures how well a person can see objects and it's a screening test. We can detect myopia and hyperopia, but not establish the degree or severity of these cases, which have to be measured with uh, different glasses and correcting and measuring uh, different focal distances. What we use is a Snelling chart, which gives us a good idea of how affected these uh, eyes are. And there are two problems here, hyperopia and myopia, which have to do with the shape of the eye. The hyperopia, the eyeball has a shape that makes the uh, light rays focus behind the retina. In myopia, the eyeball has a shape that makes the light rays focus in front of the retina. What we have to do, we cannot change the shape of the eyeball, but we can change the focal distance of the object by different corrective glasses. Concave or convex, depending on the nature of the problem, will focus the distance at which the objects will get focused. And that's what the second part of the examination, after you detect this uh, farsightedness or nearsightedness, and they start measuring different types of lenses, which one is the best for you, you can see better. What they try is different distances and focusing the objects to the retina, uh, depending on the size of your eyeball. Astigmatism is another problem, which is loss of the normal curvature of the cornea. Therefore, the objects are not focused properly on the retina. And usually you see blurry or some letters are seen like half of the letter is clear, but half the other half is not clear. And that also can be corrected with measuring the angle measuring the curve of the cornea and getting the proper glasses for that. All those are refraction problems. So any problem that has to do with the light going through the lens, the cornea, and getting into the retina.
the sensory neural part is in the retina. The retina is considered a nervous structure um, because the photoreceptors that detect all the light, they are actually neurons, modified neurons. They send their axons, they send their axons through the optic nerve. If we see the retina with this instrument called the ophthalmoscope, we see inside the eye and there's an eye examination, we will see this image. You have the picture there. The yellow part, the yellow disc here is called the optic disc. And that's a place where all the blood vessels are getting into the retina. And that's a place where all the axons of these photoreceptors are getting together and start traveling in the optic nerve. We can see the blood vessels with this instrument. We can see the retina like this, like all red. There is an area that looks a little darker, which is called the macula lutea, and in the central part is the fovea centralis. Well, this area is the area where there is more concentration of these photoreceptors, so that allows a very clear vision. That's a focused part of your vision. When we read, we move our eyes, focusing the words to some to this part, the macula lutea and fovea centralis. The retina has many layers of cells, as we see here. One of them is the photoreceptors, which are of two types, rods and cones. They are in the inner layer, meaning towards the inside of the chamber or the cavity to the vitreous humor. There's a second layer of cells called bipolar cells. And then, a third layer called ganglion cells. Photoreceptors, rods and cones, that's the first layer. Second layer, bipolar cells. And third layer, the ganglion cells. Now, if you see the ganglion cells, the ganglion cells are providing axons, and those axons are traveling as part of the optic nerve. There are more cells, like the amacrine cells, horizontal cells, which can be uh, understood as interneurons. See, the retina is very complex. Are, uh, they describe up to six different types or seven different types of cells in the retina. But the main three layers are photoreceptors, bipolar cells, and ganglion cells. And the photoreceptors are of two types, rods and cones. Rods and cones because of their shape. There's a, this part of the cell which has the shape of a cone or a rod. And if you see inside, they look like a pile of discs located inside. We'll see how they work. They contain chemicals, pigments. Start with the rods. The rods are the ones that allow vision, low light. There's a 
black and white vision or tones of gray that we see when there's not enough light in the room, we can see shapes, but we cannot determine colors very well. The discs of the rods, they contain a pigment called rhodopsin. And this rhodopsin is made of two components, retinaldehyde and opsin. The retinaldehyde derives from vitamin A. That's why we need vitamin A as part of nutrition to have all these rods properly filled with uh, rhodopsin. Well, the light will impress the retina and the light will make this happen, this reaction called bleaching reaction, which is explained better here. So the discs of the rods with rhodopsin molecules inside, the light comes here. Here we see the two components, the retinaldehyde and the opsin. Well, the light, what it makes is to change this retinaldehyde, which is the chemical description, is 11 transretinal. And notice there is an angle here that is straightened by the action of the light. But not only this 11 transretinal will dissociate from the opsin. This is called the bleaching reaction. The opsin and the transretinal will dissociate. And now we have the opsin and transretinal separated. This 11 transretinal, then afterwards, quickly, it will be reverted into the 11 cis retinal with an angle in the molecule here by an enzyme. And now in this configuration, cis retinal, it will bind the opsin again. It will bind the opsin and we have this rhodopsin again restored. This is called bleaching reaction and this actually mediates the reaction that allows us to see. How? Well, this reaction will favor depolarization of the membrane. And you know depolarization follows action potentials, signals going into the brain. And this bleaching reaction and restoration of the rhodopsin, it takes some seconds. It takes some time. The regeneration of 11 trans to 11 cis, that happens in the pigmented cells, in the epithelial cells of the retina. There's a layer which is pigmented. And these cells are, are the ones that uh, favor this uh, restoration of the 11 trans into 11 cis. This time that it takes for the rhodopsin to be restored are the basis, or is the basis uh, of the dark adaptation. When we enter into a dark room after being out in the light or bright light, there are fewer pigments in the rods and cones. But then after some minutes, more pigments are produced. More pigments are produced and we are able to see better we get adapted to the dark environment, the new dark environment. And that takes some minutes. 
that takes a minute. That depends on the restoration of the pigments, more reduction present to improve the sensitivity of the rods to the few light that is in the dark room. And then after some minutes, we're able to see shapes, we're able to see uh, <coughs> objects, but not, not be able to see clear or discern the colors. That about the cones, I mean the rods. The cones are more related with color vision. They are sensitive to light, but since there are different types of cones that are stimulated at different wavelengths of the rays, they will give this impression of different colors. There are three types of cones. Short wavelengths, detect short wavelengths of rays, or blue, medium, or green, and long wavelengths, or red. The pigments they work in the same way, although the photopsins or opsins are related with retina, which is a variation of the retinal. Uh, but they respond in the same way. They're stimulated by light, and it changes the configuration of the retina, causing depolarization of the cells. For the cones to react, light is necessary, but they will detect the light in different ways, depending on the cones that are stimulated. And here we see the range of detection of each type of cone. The short are the blue cones, the green are the medium cones, and the red or large cones or long cones and then they take different wavelengths. The wavelengths are understood in different colors. So let's say if uh, we use a light with a 500 of wavelength, we will have different number of cones stimulated at this point. At 500, there are more green cones stimulated more than red and the red more than blue. So you get a combination of green, red, and blue. You won't see pure color of 500. We see a combination of green, red, and blue. More green, less red, and even less blue. And that the mixture of different cones stimulated will give you the, the, the color that you will see, a mixture of colors that you see. Pathways. We see the visual fields. The visual fields are detected by different areas of the retina. And the retina will send the axons through the optic nerve in two ways. Some part of the retina will send the axons and will travel in the same side, but the other side of the retina will go to the contralateral side. And they will connect to midbrain, superior colliculus. Visual reflexes we see here, because from here, some fibers will return to constrict the pupil. That's one of the reflexes that we, that we observe. 
But then he continues to a nucleus in the midbrain called the lateral geniculate. No, that's the thalamus, in the thalamus. And from the thalamus to the occipital cortex. Occipital lobe, remember, is the area for vision. Area 17, that is the main visual area. Areas 18 and 19 are right next to it, but they are called visual association cortex. And now the eyes move. There are six muscles related with the eyeballs. We move our uh, eyeballs depending on well, following some patterns, three types of movements. One is called the saccadic eye movement, which are the movements that keep the eyeballs focused. In other words, align the fovea centralis with the object that you're trying to see well. And they're also called high velocity because that's, you can figure this when you're reading you're following the words to the end of the page and then come back to the beginning. You follow slow reading and then get to the end of the line and you go back to the next line. So these are movements in this way, high speed move motion this way. The other type is smooth pursuit movement. Like when we follow some object moving, we can even regulate the speed at which we move our eyeballs. And the next is virgins when we try to converge our both eyes in order to see the object very close, that's what we measured last time, a near point of vision. When you put the pencil close to your eyes and try to see where you see it, you start to see it blurry. Convergence, we move our eyeballs trying to focus the object. All these movements are required for having a good vision. And some of the muscles are damaged or have a problem then we'll not be able to see very well. We'll see blurry, we're not able to see the close object, we'll not be able to read very well. And not a problem of the refraction or glasses or things, this is a problem of the muscles of the eye. Any question, any comment?